and welcome back to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. The Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin, Texas, has established a reputation as a resource and source for information about plants, and not just wildflowers, but all kinds of flowers, trees, and shrubs. The Wildflower Center has gardens that demonstrate the value of different native plants and has a mission that goes beyond plants into designing and maintaining sustainable ecosystems. You may not have thought about your garden, your yard, as an ecosystem, but it is. It's important to see it that way so that you can develop it to be a sustainable landscape. What exactly is a sustainable landscape, or an ecosystem for that matter? In this program, we'll be talking to two experts at the Wildflower Center, whose work focuses on those two topics, sustainable landscapes or sites, and ecosystems. Their aim is to work with builders, cities, and individuals to create sustainable sites in which the ecosystem is designed to work with nature. The two are Jonathan Garner, Program Coordinator at the Sustainable Sites Initiative, and Michelle Bright, an Environmental Designer with Ecosystem Design Group at the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. We'll hear how they create sustainable ecosystems, what exactly a sustainable ecosystem is, and how their work is aimed at protecting and preserving our Mother Earth. Michelle Bright is an environmental designer who's worked on multiple projects, both in Texas and elsewhere, and she's part of the Ecosystem Design Group. Here she is to tell you more. I'm Michelle Bright. I'm an environmental designer here at the Wildflower Center. And the program I work with has been around for about 16 years. We started out as a landscape restoration program. And we have since, and then we were working on more rural and suburban properties. And now we're working in more urban areas because people are definitely moving there on a faster rate. Um, and our team is made up of ecologists. We have design professionals, land stewards, and then also restoration specialists. And um, what our mission is, is to really conserve, restore, and create healthy landscapes. And the way our team goes about doing that is by uh, doing research here at the site, and then we educate people about that research and about things that we um, know a lot about. And then we also um, apply our research and knowledge off-site. So we work and we partner with people on projects in, in around Texas and also nationally. And I'm Jonathan Garner, a program coordinator for the Sustainable Sites Initiative. Uh, the Sustainable Sites Initiative is a program that uh, set out a national set of guidelines for the evaluation of a landscape in, it, in terms of being sustainable or not. And when we look at the work that Michelle and her team have done over the past 16 years, it became really important for us to uh, consider setting out um, the, the methods and the strategies that they use put them into a national set of guidelines that other uh, professionals across the country could use. So we took sort of a model from the LEAD model, the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and we looked at how that model shifted the building industry to, to more sustainable outcomes, such as using low toxic paint or a little bit more sustainably forested lumber. And we thought that we could duplicate that but make it for landscapes. And so that really set the groundwork for the Sustainable Sites Initiative. In 2006, a group of 
collaborators from all across the country, technical advisors in, in respective areas of landscape design and development got together and put out a set of guidelines. Those guidelines were tested in the field with several different projects to give us evaluation and give us feedback on what's working and what's not working. Those guidelines have since been revised and were released in June 2014 to the public for use. And we're starting to see some, some major um, um, adoption of those guidelines for land design and for development. Um, since June, we've been focusing a lot of our efforts on education and, and giving more information to the public and to the professional industry so that um, this adoption of these guidelines becomes more prevalent. Both your organizations come under the umbrella of the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. Can you tell me how that, how that works? What's the relationship? Sure. So um, the Wildflower Center itself is uh, an entity that's really made up of um, many different departments. We have conservation, plant conservation, we have horticulture, um, and then we also have the programs we're in, sustainable sites and the ecosystem design group. And all of these, we see, um, we see everything that happens at the Wildflower Center, and there's a lot of cross-pollination between all the departments in order to make our departments really function well. Um, and each of us kind of specializes in, in those areas uh, the best they can. Um, so the research we do here at the Wildflower Center, uh, our group actually focuses on green roof research, sustainable turf grass research, and then we also have land management research, and that's where we do prescribed fire and prescribed burns. And we take that knowledge um, and we use it on other projects uh, across kind of the state um, and sometimes across country. Um, and uh, one of those things is Habiturf, which is a sustainable turf grass that we use here. Um, and it was developed here at the Wildflower Center. Um, that was based off of knowledge we got from being in um, systems across Texas and seeing what a short grass turf or prairie looks like. And so we took that knowledge of being out there and what that system looked like and we adapted it for something that could be used by a landowner for turf grass. Um, the habit turf itself is a combination of three different species. It's buffalo grass, it is um, blue grama, and it's curly mesquite. And they all have a very similar look. They're a very fine um, kind, of, kind of bladed grass, and they have a really soft texture. Um, what makes this what we call a more sustainable turf is that it requires less resources to keep up. So it's slow growing, so it requires less mowing. It also requires a lot less um, irrigation. The Sustainable Sites Initiative program is based sort of here out of the Wildflower Center, um, taking a lot of some of the experts that Michelle mentioned, the ecologists, the, the plant experts, botanists, things like that, and then duplicating that effort all across the country. We've collaborated with the American Society of Landscape Architects and the United States Botanic Garden um, as sort of the three main collaborators. And then we have over 70 technical experts that are positioned all across the United States, uh, each expert in their field of soil science or uh, botany or hydrology, um, materials that we use, even aspects of human health and well-being, um, construction and operations and maintenance. So together, all of these experts have come together to not only help us develop these guidelines, but also to provide us with the, the criteria to make it 
nationwide. Because we could develop a set of guidelines that would be just based here, maybe regionally within Central Texas, but then that doesn't do as, it doesn't have as much impact as something that's on a national basis. And so all of the, the guidelines that we have set are looking specifically at what's happening on your site in your specific region. And we know that because of all the, the expert um, advice that we've had from these people throughout the country. The work that both of you do centers on designing sustainable landscapes. Can you tell me what is a sustainable site? A sustainable site is a landscape. It's something, an area that holds the potential to protect, improve, or regenerate uh, natural benefits and services that are provided by landscapes. So when we think of services and benefits, these are sort of the things that we, that are daily foundation of life, such as clean air, clean water, um, providing food, uh, providing shelter, things of that nature. So when we talk in terms of sustainable landscapes, we're talking about designing and developing these landscapes in a way that they can give back, that they can provide these services and benefits to us on a daily basis, but increase the, the way that those services and benefits are given to us so that they are um, preserved and, and restored and available for future generations. Talk about the relationship then between landscapes and buildings. One of the reasons sustainable sites really, um, they, they had a reason to, to, to go forward with something like that, is that we had been thinking about what we put into the ground and what we build as becoming more sustainable with programs like LEED. But um, we hadn't paid much attention to how they were put into the ground or um, what the landscape was doing. Um, and so, and this to us was uh, a little bit um, counterintuitive because when you build a correct ecosystem or landscape, it gives back to you endlessly. Uh, when you put a building in the ground, it usually over time, well, that's the best it'll be, and then it'll start slowly deteriorating. But not necessarily a landscape. It can actually have qualities that, if designed correctly or conserved or restored correctly, can start giving back. And um, it can filter water. Uh, it, can, uh, it can make more air for us to breathe. It can provide us even just a beautiful place to be in. Um, so, so really, uh, thinking about ways in which we can make that process more sustainable. Um, we, we sometimes notice that conventional ways of dealing with landscapes often don't think of all the, um, the great functional qualities we can get out of them, and sometimes use them more as a decoration than they, um, than they can be for functional quality. So it's a, it's a big thing we, we think is, uh, should change, definitely. Mm -hmm. So a sustainable site in an urban setting or a rural or a suburban setting is going to be different in some ways. Can you talk about in what ways? We, we often say that whether it be small or large or urban or uh, suburban, these can all be sustainable sites. Now the way we go about it usually will be slightly different. And each project we work on, we usually come up with a series of goals that we can um, reach. So whether it be creating habitat might be a goal or increasing biodiversity might be a goal. Um, so depending on whether you're a homeowner, your goals will be different than if you're um, a commercial landowner. One of the things that sustainable sites and our group 
tries to encourage people to do is to conserve and restore before creating brand new uh, landscapes. However, we do realize that there's a lot of existing landscapes out there that need um, human inputs. They need to be managed and they need to sometimes be creative, created. Uh, one of uh, a projects that we, project we worked on that we had to do something like this was the San Antonio River uh, Ecological Restoration. And there uh, we worked with the San Antonio uh, River Authority on about eight miles of river. And this river, uh, this is just south of San Antonio, so in a very urban setting. And this river, for flooding reasons, had been channelized, and the management properties of this was just essentially a mown ditch right down to the edges. Um, it was a mown ditch um, right down to the edge. And it uh, was also pretty much infested with problematic species, things like Johnson grass, um, not a ton of habitat. And there, yes, we could have just let it go and conserve it, um, but instead we took a more uh, kind of active role and we started um, helping them think about restoring their soils and uh, restoring the different plant communities that are there or recreating new plant, plant communities there. Um, and it's been a large success, not only with the amount of um, plants and wildlife they've had come back, but it's become a, become a huge amenity to the community. Um, and I think to date they've, they've planted over 2,000 trees and shrubs in this area. They, uh, in the tall grass prairie area, they have 60 plus native plants, uh, grasses and wildflowers. So um, overall, it's, it's been great for them. And f that will get their, that piece of landscape on the right trajectory to be able to um, combat things like problematic species. And even if you get uh, an overlap of some areas where you don't have native species and you have some that are native, that's all right in some degrees. It's a, it's a large site. Um, so uh, it, it's one of those uh, areas where we actively manage it, yeah. I would assume one of the goals there was to prevent the flooding? Exactly. How does what you did do that? So that's a great question, and that was one of the ones the ecologists here were dealing with immediately. Uh, the reason they mowed and channelized that piece of river is because they needed to have floodwaters move through it fast. So we worked very actively with the U.S. Um, Army Corps of Engineers, and they uh, and with a series of engineers that came up with a hydro hydrologic model, and it said, "Okay." You can put some vegetation back in some areas where the stream maybe or the river widens out, but you can't you can't put a ton of vegetation where it's narrow. So there was rules we had to follow in order to still meet the flooding requirements for that community. But they were still able to do it, and I, I think that that in the wider areas they were able to create about 300 or so acres of riparian forest that will slowly start regenerating over time. So um, for us, that was an, a beautiful balance of having something that provides a safety um, thing for the community by, by moving stormwater flows, but then also being able to hold back and slow some of the flows as well and create habitat for um, tons of wildlife out there. So um, let's talk about what are the benefits of sustainable landscapes to you and me, to the individual average person. 
Yeah, how much time do we have? Because we could spend the rest of the interview talking about uh, all these wonderful benefits that landscapes can provide us. Um, but let me just narrow it down to a specific term that I think we've heard already, this term of ecosystem services. And like I said, these are goods and benefits that are provided to you and me on a daily basis. Um, things like providing us with air and water or providing us food, you know, providing habitat for pollinator species so that they can migrate and provide and, and pollinate the plants that provide us with our food. Um, but there's also other things. Um, they, these ecosystem services can do things like Michelle was mentioning with the San Antonio River Project. They can protect us from catastrophic flooding. Um, some of the research that we're doing out here at the Wildfire Center with the prescribed burns, these are things that can help us with catastrophic wildfires by reducing those fuel loads of, of, um, to prevent from wildfires spreading through the region. So when we're talking about sustainable landscapes and the benefits that they provide us, we're really talking about ecosystem services and what those, how those ecosystem services can be uh, generated, can be restored, um, can be created in these landscapes. So specifically, if we talk about, uh, say, like human health, then, um, you know, we're talking about having cleaner air to breathe, having cleaner water to drink. Uh, but there's other intrinsic values, like providing space for gardening or um, so that we can teach our children where the food actually comes from, um, or things like conserving places of cultural or historic value. Again, these are important places among the history of man that allows us to, to learn from and to teach our, our young generations about these landscapes. Obviously here in Central Texas, water is a major precious resource. It's something that um, has almost caused wars, I think, over here. Um, so we know that that's, a, that's an important value and we want to encourage uh, projects and, and encourage professionals to, to make note of how water it flows through the site and how water can be used on the site. And a lot of that comes down to um, understanding the vegetation uh, and the needs of that vegetation. We encourage the use of appropriate or native plants so that um, just regardless of where you are in the region that you understand that the plants you put in are using the amount of rainfall um, best and can handle those conditions. Um, we're also talking about the use of water in terms of irrigation. Uh, it's estimated right now that about 30% of a, f a family of four, an average family of four, their daily water use goes towards outdoor activities like watering the lawn or the garden. And that's a tremendous amount of water. And what's worse is that usually that water that's used is the same water that's treated to the same drinking quality uh, of our water. So we want to teach uh, professionals, we want to teach uh, homeowners how to you know, best strategies for how to capture the rain that falls from the sky, this natural um, free resource that is abundant to all of us, uh, how we can capture that and we can reuse it for irrigation. Um, you know, when we talk about other resources of the earth, talking about raw resource procurement, uh, that's another way of sort of saying uh, how we take materials out of the ground like wood or rock or coal for, you know, to turn into steel, how we can lessen the amount of those materials that we pull out of the, of the, of the earth. And instead, we can take resources that are, have already been mined or extracted. Instead of throwing those away into the landfill when they've reached the end of their life or you know, the use that they were intended for, we can reuse those. We can salvage those materials and put them into a new purpose for 
use in the landscape. And that, like I said, solves two problems of extracting materials that are um, constantly shrinking and keeping those materials out of the landfill. What would be an example of that? I like to use the example of a tree. So you can take a tree and you can mill it down and you can manufacture it and you can turn it into, say, a bench or an arbor structure. And that bench or arbor structure will last for about 20, 30 years, you know, depending on the conditions that it's in. And then you start to see maybe it rots or maybe let's pull back from there and say in five years, you decide, I don't really want that arbor there anymore, but the lumber is still good. And so you decide that, well, maybe I want a gazebo or maybe I want um, a deck. So let's, let's address the arbor that you built already and the wood that was used for that. Let's carefully deconstruct that structure and let's salvage those materials for reuse in a new project, either a deck or maybe you want to build a compost bin. And so this wood can be reused. It saves you money out of your own pocket because you're reusing sources, uh, resources that you already paid for, but it also keeps you from having to throw those materials away purchase new materials that were extracted out of the ground mm -hmm. already. Makes sense. How do you, I mean, I love all these ideas that you've just uh, laid out. How do you get people to do this? How do you get the information out and then convince them that this is the way to go? That's our, that's our new challenge now. That's uh, where a lot of our focus is on the education aspect of, of teaching um, all levels of learners from preschool all the way up until um, adult learners, professionals. Um, the Wildflower Center offers a, a host of educational uh, initiatives that target each of those audiences so that we can teach this mission that we're saying about conserving, restoring, creating healthy landscapes. All these aspects are part of that. And to teach uh, each age group the different things that they can do to begin thinking that way is is what we're focusing a lot of our efforts on right now. So a lot of those resources, those educational resources that I talked about, you can find those easily on our website, wildflower.org. Under the education tab, you can see the different levels of education um, opportunities that are available. Uh, we also host a bunch of different um, opportunities throughout the year here at the Wildflower Center. So definitely check the website and check the calendar for what's happening. And then we're working on developing a, a next level of our professional workshop series that Michelle, I think, can talk about that. So one of the things our group does, since we work more with people that are constructing these landscapes, um, we work on commercial properties uh, and also um, you know, residential as well. But we, we realize what needs to be taught in, in the industry. So we've hosted workshops here that are directed more towards the industry um, clientele. So mm -hmm. you, you, we've had people that are um, from maintenance uh, companies, that are from the horticultural companies, that are, from, that are landscape architects, even architects come out, planners, um, to learn a little bit more about how they can do and um, go through with the project more sustainably. And um, those uh, workshops happen uh, usually once every year. So keep an eye out for those. And I'll say one thing about our, our mission to educate the public about these kinds of things is that 
um, the big goal there is that we, there has to be a shift in the conventional thinking of how landscapes are nowadays. So we often sometimes see a, a landscape and, and it's green or it's very lush and we think, oh man, that's a beautiful landscape. But we don't always think about all the inputs that have to go into keeping that landscape looking that way. And especially if we're talking about uh, a very bright green and lush and thick lawn here in Central Texas, there's a lot that has to happen to go into that. So we have we want to shift that thinking that a, a turf lawn or, or something like that um, here in, in Texas is not is not necessarily what is supposed to be there. You know, we need to look back kind of historically over time what the landscape was and what it needs to be, and then using the resources that we have with the Sustainable Sites Initiative Program or with the educational opportunities that we have here at the Wildflower Center for people to learn what those, what the landscape needs to look like and what can make it healthy and what can make it provide these ecosystem services that we've talked about so much today. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. And in fact, um, the whole idea of lawns uh, just seems crazy in a lot of ways. Um, especially the kind of green, lush lawn that requires a lot of water. Uh, but but what, what do you offer as an option? So uh, if, if somebody comes to you and says, just an average homeowner, and they have a garden that's not much of anything, maybe it's just raw earth, and they're trying to figure out what to do, what kinds of things could you tell them to help them develop an ecological system in their yard? Sure, I can take a stab at that question. Um, so one of the things about turf that we, we've run into is, um, first of all, it is a really lovely thing to be in when it's your yard. That's why they're so popular. Um, everybody wants to sit outside on a blanket and enjoy maybe a cup of coffee or watch their kids play soccer. Um, so it, you know, it really has, and, and, you know, in my opinion, they're quite beautiful. <laughs> um, but I think it's the, what we, uh, what we think of as lawn, like Jonathan was saying. Uh, right now, the way we think of lawn is always green, even green in winter, which co like totally blows my mind. Plants are dormant usually during the winter. Um, so with, with a more native or sustainable turf grass, grass option, um, people have to get used to the idea that during extreme temperatures, whether it be the winter or even the heat of the summer, that that lawn could potentially go dormant. And um, it's also getting used to a different color and realizing it might be not green, but golden, as we call it. Um, so here at the Wildflower Center, the Habiturf that was developed, we've done some studies with that. Um, and actually, uh, the, the uh, scientists um, and ecologists who developed that mix has it at his house and he did a he did a little study called the zombie lawn study where he allowed the lawn to completely um, in the summer kind of completely turn brown and then he slowly started adding water back and it came back um, and it's it, it's just a, a different idea of how we treat our spaces a golden lawn is a beautiful sight in winter and during other times of the year when it's hot and rain is scant. I have enjoyed having a buffalo grass lawn that rarely needs mowing and that we haven't watered in 20 years. 
Just think of all the precious water that could be saved by having a lawn of native grasses like buffalo grass or the Habiturf developed at the Wildflower Center. There's more to come from the Wildflower Center in our next program. We'll be talking about a precious water resource in Wimberley, the Blue Hole, and the work that was done with the help of the Wildflower Center Sustainable Sites Initiative to restore it and preserve it for future generations. Until then, this is Salwa Khan, signing off for Mothering Earth. <laughs>